2 Thessalonians 1, last week when we were together, we talked about a great testimony, what it takes to have a great testimony. I know that nobody uh, here this evening was here last week, but uh, we talked about what it takes to have a great testimony. And as we talked about that, we came to the conclusion that a great testimony is rooted and grounded in faith. A great testimony is rooted and grounded in faith. And we defined what faith is. We went to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then we went to James chapter 2, where James speaks of faith that is without works. And he says that the faith that is without works is dead. He goes on to say, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And as we came to the conclusion of what faith is, we concluded that faith, we might define it as belief in action. That it is what we know to be true and what we believe to be true to the extent that it is actually changing the way we operate, changing the way that we live our lives. Just because we know something does not mean that we have faith in it. We know the Bible is true. We know the things in the Bible are true. But by, by the definition of Scripture, or by a scriptural definition would be a better way to say that, we don't truly put our faith into it until it changes the way that we live our lives, until we adapt our lives to conform ourselves to the truth that we know. And so we spoke about that last week, and as we transition this week into verses 4 through 6, we're going to learn a little bit about the righteous judgment of God. You'll see that phrase in the passage this evening, the righteous judgment of God. When we think about the judgments of God, we typically and appropriately turn our minds toward the wrath of God, particularly upon an unbelieving world. That the judgments of God are reserved for the unbelieving world. But the concept of judgment in righteousness is actually more broad than that. We know that God will judge the unbelieving world, but we also recognize that God will judge the believing world as well. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17... For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And he goes on to say, If it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So the idea being that we will face judgment as well. We will not be judged uh, for our sins unto condemnation, but we will be judged by our works for reward or for loss. The righteous judgments of God apply as much to how we live our lives as believers as it does to those who reject the testimony of God in the world through the creation and through conscience and through Scripture. And this will be important for us to understand as we step into the text today because Paul presents what he calls the righteous judgments of God. And as he does so, he presents it within uh, two different but interrelated contexts how the righteous judgments of God touch the believer, and then how the righteous judgments of God touch the unbeliever. And what we're going to see as he presents this, we're not going to look too much, as we just mentioned, about how God will judge 
the believer, but rather how God will use the believer as an aspect of his righteous judgment upon the unbeliever. How God will use our testimony as believers as a part of the righteous judgment upon unbelievers. And he first mentions this judgment within the context of the difficulties that the church has been facing in Thessalonica. Look with me, if you would, in Second Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter one, beginning in verse three. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. We're going to stop there for this week. And we'll pick up next week as we continue to think of the wrath of God upon the unbelieving world. Tonight we're going to contrast these two aspects of God's righteous judgment. The aspect upon the, uh, as it touches, relates to the believer, and the aspect as it rests upon the unbeliever. And we're going to understand it this evening, particularly in terms of our responsibility as believers in this world. Now, next time we meet together on a Sunday night, presumably next week, Lord willing, we will discuss how this relates to the wrath of God and the wrath of God being poured out specifically upon the unbelieving world. So as we dig into the text this evening, we've already read verses 3 through 6. Let's consider as we pick up verse 4. Paul says, We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that we endure. We understand or we ought to understand very well by this point as we walk through 1 Thessalonians and now we are considering 2 Thessalonians, we ought to understand by this point the persecutions and tribulations that the church of Thessalonica endured but for their faith in the gospel and uh, by extension the reality of persecution as it touches believers in this life. But I'd like us to take a few moments and just review the breadth of Scripture or a couple of points at least, we might say, of Scripture as it relates to the legitimate possibility of suffering in this Christian life. And one of the best passages to go to to relate to what Jesus Christ has to say about this are his own words, his teaching to his disciples in John 15. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here, so buckle in and hang on. In John 15, beginning in verse 18, I'm actually going to read all the way to verse 27 of John 15. Jesus says, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, 
they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word, word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send, unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Now, in this fairly lengthy passage, Jesus Christ is teaching about the reality that the world will reject the disciple of Christ, because the world has rejected Christ Himself And Jesus Christ makes several points here. The first point being the reality of rejection. We've talked about this word hatred before, and we understand that the word hate does not always inherently have to do with the emotion of hatred as we think of it today. It can very well include the idea of this emotion of hatred, but it can also simply mean to place lower in value or priority or to set aside. And so Jesus Christ began... Uh, in verse 18 by saying, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And as we think about the breadth and length of the idea of the world hating us, we could very well in many cases say that this has to do with the emotional context of hatred. Uh, you can get uh, on the internet or you can read the news or you can look at culture around us and you can say, yeah, there are plenty of people out there that literally hate us, emotionally hate us, that when they think of biblical Christianity, anger wells up in them against biblical Christianity, particularly on the liberal-leaning side of the culture right now, they literally hate us. But then there's a good amount of culture as well that we might say is um, ambivalent to us. They, they, they're fine. They're, they're fine with us. As a matter of fact, many of them would, would see biblical, um, those who are exercising you know, biblical Christianity would see them as um, beneficial to society, have good work ethic, their kids are generally obedient, they're contributors to society and such. And so we could see um, that, that context, but whether or not they have accepted us as people, they have set aside, placed lower in priority or value or rejected the message that we hold if they're unbelievers. That's, that's what it means to be an unbeliever. Just a moment. Okay. If I didn't plug that in, you'd probably lose that about halfway through. Must have been lost at some point in the pre, uh, pre-sermon scuffle. So, so we understand this idea of hatred to be not necessarily emotionally, though possibly emotionally driven. But then Jesus, as he's teaching these concepts about the the world and its hatred of, of us, the first point he makes is that the world will hate you or reject you or reject your message or set you aside or place you lower in priority or by and large simply marginalize you because it hates the truth of Christ. Really, it's not about you. Did you know that? When you are scorned, 
or ridiculed or hated when you take a stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you are marginalized or set aside because you follow uh, the, the righteous um, teachings of God, it really has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with who it is that's shining through you. It has to do with the reality that Christ is shining through and they don't like that truth. The unbelieving world doesn't want to know that they're sinners. The unbelieving world doesn't want to know that there's a God who has authority over them. The unbelieving world loves its sin, loves its darkness and everything associated with it. And so we see Jesus teach several chapters earlier in the book of John, John 3.19, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus is speaking in this passage, John three sixteen through 19, about the reality that the believer is not condemned because he has believed and the unbeliever is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And he says this is the condemnation. The condemnation, the thing which condemns them is that light is in the world but they don't want the light. They love darkness rather than light because they love their evil deeds. And because they love their evil deeds, they are going to rest in the darkness where they can do their evil deeds without a fit of conscience. But see, here's the problem. Your light. Your light. How can they do their evil deeds with your light shining there? The second point Jesus makes as we walk through this John 15 passage, in verse 19 he says, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world loves and accepts everything that is rooted in the world. Now this is not simply those things that we might say are um, secular. The world is fine with a religion that's rooted in the world. The world is fine with the religion as long as that religion is not spouting truth. As long as it's not exhibiting truth. Why is it that you have so many people in this country who are calling for the, the society to support and to tolerate Islamic hatred, but to hate... Christians simply for wanting to live according to the dictates of our own conscience. The reason why there is this strange, we might even say illogical dichotomy of them looking at a religion that is beheading people for not believing what they believe and saying, hey, we need to pacify these people, but looking at a religion that is simply saying, I don't want to have to, to marry two homosexual people or I don't want to have to pay for your abortion and say these people are the evil scum of the earth. The reason why that is is because this religion over here that's beheading people is in the world. There's nothing about it that's not of the world. Everything about it is the world. And this religion over here is of the truth. And the truth shines light into a dark world. And so it's hated. And this is what Jesus is teaching here. If you were of the world, the world would love you because the world loves his own. But because you're not of the world, but you've been chosen out of the world... The world hates you. So Jesus taught that the world rejected Jesus, and so naturally the world will reject his followers. 
The world loves the world. The world rejects that which is not a part of the world. And what is it about our life and our testimony that they dislike so much? Jesus says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Jesus is not saying here that they didn't have sin in the sense of they weren't sinning before He came, but literally that Jesus' presence in the world caused them to recognize their sin. That it shined a light on their sin and it's not that they weren't sinning before, but they did not understand the ugliness of their sin until truth shined in. And when truth shined upon it, they saw just how ugly it is. It's like if I were to go into um, into the bathroom in the morning and it was still dark outside and I decided not to turn the light on and I take a shower and I look in the mirror and I just see kind of this, this dark silhouette of myself and I say, yeah, I look fine. I'm okay. And I leave the room and I go about my day only to find out that my hair is all over the place and, and my beard is looking scraggly and, and my collar's half popped up. Because I was looking in a dark light, I thought, well, I'm, I'm fine here. I know that, you know, maybe there's a, there, I might not be perfect, but whatever. But if I were to have flipped that light on, with more light comes more revelation, right? With more light, I can see better what needs to be corrected. And when the light shines into a dark world, when the light shines into a world that is walking in sin, the light reveals that sin. The world hates Jesus and those who follow Jesus because we, by virtue of our new nature in Christ, do not love what they love, do not do what they do. We live in the light of the truth of God's Word. Psalm 119, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We're walking according to the Word of God. We are emanating the light of the Word of God through Jesus Christ. And it is naturally shining upon all those with whom we come in contact. And when any light, no matter how small, shines into the darkness of a sin-sick world, sin is exposed. Nobody likes to have their sin exposed. Even believers don't like to have their sin exposed, do we? Have you ever been sitting in a message or reading the Word of God in your morning devotions and all of a sudden you just see it or hear it? The Holy Spirit places His thumb on that thing in your life that you've been doing or, or you had an argument with your brother or sister that morning and at the time it was all about you and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just shows you, oh, that was really wrong. Now i got to apologize. And you just, right? You, mm, I don't, mm, no. Uh. And you, you don't like the idea of having to admit you're wrong, admit your fault, uh, reveal your sin. It's vulnerable. It's it. It reminds yourself that you're not as good as you think you are or that you want to be. And this is the believing world. Now imagine when this truth shines upon the unbelieving world. When the unbelieving world comes into contact with the Word of God or with the followers of Christ, their sin is manifest and they hate it. And their anger at having their sin exposed becomes anger at Christ for being the light. And their anger at Christ for being the light is poured out on the ones who are shining that light. And if you're doing what you ought to for Christ, then you are the one that is shining that light. But at the end of the passage, Jesus says something very important. Verse 27, And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me, 
from the beginning. He tells His disciples who have followed Him in faithfulness in the context of all the hatred of the world that through the power of the Holy Spirit called here the Comforter in, in verse 26, they will still bear witness of Him. Jesus is telling them in John 15, you will be hated, you will be set aside, you will be scorned, ridiculed, possibly even persecuted for my name's sake. He says, but ye shall bear witness of me because you've been with me. The attitude of the world toward them or toward Christ will not dissuade them from bearing witness because it's the very fabric of who they are to follow Christ because they have a new nature in Christ. They are Christ's. Christ is theirs. They cannot do anything but follow Christ because they have seen that Christ is the truth. So Jesus says, in the midst of all of the hatred, you will bear witness of me because you're with me. In John 16, Jesus is continuing to teach His disciples about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives and in the world. And toward the end of chapter 16, He says this to His disciples in verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in Me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation, but, but it's okay because I've overcome the world. You can have peace in the midst of tribulation because it, it's going to be there, but you can have peace because I have overcome the world. If you have a testimony among unbelievers in this world, Christian, expect some tribulation. And as we consider the reality of persecution and tribulation in this world, we return back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and notice what it says in verse 5. That this, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The beginning of this verse says, which is. Well, clearly, we're stepping into the middle of a sentence here, right? We have a new clause that begins and it's a dependent clause, so we need to figure out what it's dependent upon. Well, what is this which? We look back in verse 4, and Paul says, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Paul says that these persecutions and tribulations that the church is enduring are the manifest tokens of the righteousness of God. Two concepts about God's righteous judgment present themselves here. The first, which we'll cover in verse 6, is that the way the world treats believers is a token of why God is righteous, is just in judging them the way that He will at the end of the world. That because the world has rejected and hated believers, this will be a foundation for the justification. When they stand before God and say, God, why judge me? He'll say, look at how you treated my followers as they followed Christ. Which means, look how you treated my son Jesus Christ by extension. Because the world hates that which is true and even attacks those who represent truth, they are worthy of God's wrath. But the, the inescapable idea that exists in this verse 
based specifically upon this second phrase, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, is that God equates your patient endurance of persecution and tribulation with being a follower of Christ to such an extent that God sees these sufferings as proof of your worthiness to enter the kingdom of God. God equates the patient endurance of persecutions and tribulations with His children to such an extent that it is through these sufferings that we prove our worthiness to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me say what I... Let me, let me just slow down for a minute and tell you what I'm not saying here. I am not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that if you do not suffer persecution, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Some people have taken it to that extent, that if they don't see themselves suffering persecution then they feel as though they're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And so they go and they try to drum up persecution. They try to make people angry at them. They be as as abrasive as they can to drum up persecution in order to make people hate them so that they can feel worthy of the kingdom of God. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is not saying that if you do not suffer persecution, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God, as if our salvation was somehow tied to the degree of suffering that we have. The more I suffer, the, the higher ranked I'll be on the scale of salvation. It's nothing like that. Rather, what the Bible is saying here is that those who are worthy of the kingdom of God by nature of their new birth in Jesus Christ will, when facing suffering and persecution, prove the worth that they already have by patiently enduring the tribulation. May I say that again? What the Bible is saying is that those who are worthy of the kingdom of God and they're worthy by nature of their new birth through accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, when they do face suffering, when they do face persecution, they will prove that they are a part of the family of God. They will prove that they are worthy of the kingdom of God through their patient endurance. So you don't become worthy of the kingdom by being patient. You are patient because you're a member of the kingdom. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. We see this word worthy come up here and in several other scriptures. The idea of who is worthy of Christ. And again, we're not talking about the reality that if I don't reject my family that I'm not worthy of Christ, but rather that because I am one who has accepted Christ as my Savior, put Christ higher in value, higher in priority than anything else in this world. If it comes down to Christ or my family, I'm going to choose Christ. If it comes down to Christ or my possessions, I'm going to choose Christ. And therefore, I am found worthy of Christ, for I have placed Him higher than anything else. An inherent aspect of belief on the name of Jesus Christ unto salvation is the elevation of the truth of God's Word above any other loyalty, above any other priority in our life, so that Jesus 
can rightly say that any man who places more priority upon an earthly relationship or refuses to bear the tribulations of being a follower of Jesus Christ has never truly become a follower to begin with and thus never experienced the new birth and received a new nature in Christ. Now, what should this do for us? What should this understanding of these two verses do for us? First, it should encourage and assure us that if we have been genuinely born again by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we know that on the day of tribulation, on the day of persecution, on the day where that trial comes as to whether or not you will deny the faith, you won't deny the faith. But second, it should cause us some introspection. That if you're sitting there in your seat today and you say, you know what? If I were to be faced with a do or die situation for Christ, I would do. <laughs> I wouldn't die. Well, then there's a problem. I remember I was in seventh grade, eighth grade, excuse me, eighth grade when the Columbine massacre happened. My school was uh, not very far from Columbine. And of course, this, is the, this was the defining school massacre of our time. It kind of got the ball rolling for the, the new modern generation of, of school shootings. And I remember talking with my friends about this very concept. A couple of them believers, a couple of them unbelievers about um, what we thought we might do in those situations. And of course, in, in eighth grade, you can say that nowadays. You'd say, well, I don't know because I'm not in that situation. Who knows what would happen? Uh, that, that comes with maturity. But I remember thinking about those young people in Columbine who, who did not deny their faith. Those young people who, with a shotgun against their temple, refused to deny Jesus Christ. And what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 is that the one who is worthy of Him is the one who, when faced with everything in this life to lose, chooses to lose it for Christ. And that one is worthy of Him. This correlation between the sufferings of this present world and the hope of the kingdom to come is one that's taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, Paul and Barnabas were on their second missionary journey, traveling to many of the same locations they had the first time around. And in Acts 14.22, the Scriptures tell us that they went from church to church confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God that it is very possible that our faith and our adherence to the truth of Jesus Christ will lead us down some very bumpy roads in this life. And so Jesus summed it up well in John 14, 20, or excuse me, Luke 14.27 when He said this, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. We live in an age, it's an interesting age to live in, an age where up to this point in American history, at least for the past 
um, hundred plus years, we have not in this country faced persecution for our faith as Bible-believing Christians. But the winds are changing. And there might just come a day where this message will mean far more to us than we ever could have imagined because of the realities of persecution. We suffer for the kingdom of God and in doing so, we show ourselves worthy of this very kingdom. And this is a part of the righteous judgment of God in this age that you as a follower of Jesus Christ play a part by patiently enduring the persecutions levied against you by the unbelieving world. Now the end of this suffering for the believer is glory in the kingdom of God. Verse 6 then begins a different perspective. Paul's teaching and true focus as he'll continue through verses 7 all the way to 12 is on the righteous judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. And look what he says in verse 6. Seeing, he says, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God is righteous. God is righteous. Meaning that He will always act in a manner that is consistent with His divine attributes and with His divine law. That God is equitable. God is just. He will without fail recompense to every man the fruit of His own works and decisions in this life. And according to the righteous judgments of God in this world, those who bring about persecution and tribulation upon the followers of Jesus Christ, and we mentioned already, by proxy, they are bringing these persecutions and tribulations against Christ, will be recompensed a tribulation of their own. This tribulation will be the focus of next week's message as we consider the wrath of God upon the unbelieving world. But what this means for the believer, however, is that we can trust God's righteous judgments not only to see us through the persecutions in this life, but also to see that justice will find out all of those who wrongfully persecute us in this life. That every time you are wrongfully treated for your loyalty to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God that sees, the God that knows is pleased with you and will avenge your wrong one day. This verse is very special to me. 1 Peter 2.20 For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently? This is acceptable with God. The epistle writer Peter says, what glory is there? What praise unto God? What pleasure does God have if you do wrong and people cause you to suffer for your wrongdoing? What glory is there if you break the law, you get thrown in jail and you suffer? There's no glory before God. You're suffering for your own poor actions. 
You're, you're, you are reaping the negative consequences of your poor actions. But if he says, ye do well, if you serve the Lord, if you live honestly before God and man in good conscience, and you suffer for it, and if in the midst of that suffering, you take that suffering patiently, that, my friends, is acceptable to God. When you suffer for doing well, God is pleased. And you don't need to avenge yourself. You can take it patiently because of the promises in Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt keep coals of fire upon his head. Don't avenge yourself, but much rather take the suffering patiently. When you are in the midst of persecution and your enemy is hungry, feed him. When this man who has done wrong against you and persecuted you and hated you for the name of Christ is thirsty, give him something to drink. And the Scriptures say, in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Now, I've heard a couple of different interpretations of this. One that I uh, feel is much more um, appropriate than the other. The one that I, I, I am not sold on, the one that I don't think is as appropriate, is the idea that you, by being kind to those that are uh, angry at you, you're, you're making them more angry. You're making them, it, it, it's causing them to suffer more. It's, it's almost a, 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 a vengeance by proxy as you're kind to them for their suffering and they just get angry because you're just being kind to them in the midst of their hatred toward you. And people say that's the heaping of coals of fire upon their heads, but I don't think so. I think the idea here, as we look at what the coals of fire typically are in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New, the idea of fire is always the judgment of God. And so the idea being here that as you are kind, bearing patiently the suffering and the tribulation that these men who hate you place upon you, and you are not avenging yourself for your wrongs, but you are allowing God to do so every time you do right to them and every time they respond in anger and hatred against you, they are just adding to the wrath of God that is piling up against them on the day of judgment that the coals of fire are being heaped and heaped and heaped upon their heads of God's vengeance and God's wrath because God will repay. And within this context, a context that is promising that God will mete out the vengeance that you're going to refuse to mete out. That God will repay them in the way that you're going to refuse to repay them. That God will avenge you for your patient suffering of those that would persecute you and, and um, speak against you. That every time you are kindly responding to their anger and their hatred, the wrath of God is just tallying against these wicked. You say, wow, that sounds pretty harsh, Pastor. Wait till next week. Wait till we read verses 7, 8, 9, 10, what those verses say about the anger of God against the unbelieving world. And what we'll realize is that Paul really wanted to comfort these folks 
with the reality that the tribulation that they're under has not been missed by God. The deeper we as believers venture into the unbelieving world, the deeper we are willing to go into the mire and into the muck and into the filth that is around us, the farther we're willing to go into the darkness of culture and society, the, the more we put ourselves out there for Christ, the more we are hated, the more we are maligned, the more we are persecuted for what we believe. We who keep our ear to the ground of politics and culture recognize that Christians are no longer just being opposed when they try to bring their, their understanding of biblical morality into the public forum or into public policy, but Christians are now being hunted down and purposefully attacked and purposefully silenced for their faith. These trials will only get worse as we venture even closer to the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we consider the reality of persecution and tribulation, as we consider these truths that it's a part of the righteous judgment of God that we would go through the tribulation in this life, that we are counted thus worthy of the kingdom of God, and that the unbelieving world that hates us because they hate Christ, that rejects us because they reject Christ, and therefore um, is meeting out, the, aligning themselves for the righteous judgment of God as God intends to recompense this tribulation upon those that trouble us. As we consider this, as we consider God's pleasure when we bear these tribulations patiently, it is perhaps sufficient for us to draw it all together with one statement this evening. And that statement is this. You are not accountable for the actions of others, but you are accountable for how you respond to those actions. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there ought to be one source that gives you your marching orders. And that is this right here. This ought to be the source of everything that you believe, of every direction that you go. It ought to be aligned as best you know how with this book. What you say, what you do, what you think, how you treat others, where you'll go, where you won't go, all of this should somehow be connected to your understanding of God's Word and thus God's will. You are accountable before God for what you understand from the Word of God and how you bear that out in your life. What you cannot control and what you never will be able to control is how others treat you for your choices. You will never be able to control how a person treats you because you chose not to go along with them when they wanted you to go to that place that you know you shouldn't go. You will not be able to control how the world treats you 
when you bow your head to thank God for the food that's in front of you and they get offended. You will not be able to control how the world treats you when they hear you state that you believe the Bible in a conversation with a friend. You have no control over that. But however they treat you, with whatever anger or hatred or abuse or persecution or tribulation the unbelieving world brings against you, whether we're speaking of you and your friends at school, or you and your neighbors, or you and your unsaved family members, or you and your boss, or you and those who work under you, or you and the government that is over you, or this church and the government that is over us, or this church and the ACLU, or this church and name the group that gets angry at Christians. We could throw it in there. Regardless of how they treat us, we still have control over only one thing. And that's how we respond. We will not stand before God one day and answer for how they treated us. But on the authority of God's Word, we will stand before God one day and answer for how we responded to it. You have control over yourself and nowhere in the Bible are believers given the privilege of taking vengeance into our own hands. Our expected response as a part of God's righteous judgment is the response that we see from the Thessalonian believers. Faith and patience. Now, some of you face the anger of the world every day. You go into the workplace or you meet with unsafe family members or uh, you read the news <laughs> and, and you're faced with the anger of the unbelieving world against you and against what you believe every day. Some of you, particularly the children in this room, are still in that blessed place in life where you might at least in part be incubated from some of the anger of the unbelieving world against you and against your faith. The key to all of this is not what we should feel like. If we are not being persecuted, there's something wrong. It's not that we should say, okay, I'm not being persecuted, so there's a problem here. I'm not facing tribulation, so clearly I'm not doing something that I ought to be doing. That's, That's not the key to all of this. The key is that we are spiritually and emotionally ready for the day when persecution comes. It's not that you need to go out and find somebody that will get really angry at you, but the day that you are out there and you do, how will you handle it? Young people, how will you handle it when somebody gets angry and is yelling at you for doing right? Young people, how will you handle it when somebody looks at the Bible that you're reading and goes off on this crazy tangent on how that book is nothing but a piece of uh, misogynistic, patriarchal literature that was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of angry people and uh, goes off on your God and, and how your God is a genocidal maniac, how are you going to respond? The first time you lose a job for your faith, how are you going to respond? 
This is the question. It's not about are you in it today. It's about when you get in it, how will you respond? Are you ready to respond as the Thessalonian church did in patience and in love? Are you prepared to approach the world's anger with ever more determination to love not just our Savior, but to love them when they're hungry to give them food, when they're thirsty to give them water to drink? That in the day that your faith is tested through tribulation or persecution, have you already decided that you are on the Lord's side? And on that day, Will you stand? Let's close in prayer.